0: Are Americans suffering from an undiagnosed right to health? That kind of provocative question is at the heart of our guest writing and advocacy. She says we're closer to fully securing a right to health than supporters may even realize.
1: Like you, right, this has been uh, to me something that just was sort of basic justice and basic common sense, right, that it would be desirable to have a right to health, um, that in fact right? It's um, something that many communities at many different times have had, um, and I never felt like I got adequate explanation for why we
2: don't have one. Our guest is Christina S. Ho. She's a professor of law at Rutgers University and the author of a new book, Normalizing an American Right to Health. Professor Ho is a veteran of the healthcare policy wars, having served in the White House Domestic Policy Council and for then-Senator Hillary Rodham Clinton. You have all these people who are out there who support, right? Um,
1: a better government role in assuring health care for everyone.
2: But they're afraid of the disruption to what they might already have. And this is Conversations on Health Care.
0: Well, Professor Ho, welcome to Conversations on Health Care.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to have this conversation.
0: Oh, that's great. You know, when you talk about normalizing an American right to health, you're you're speaking our language over the last 50 years. We've been advocating, holding up the banner high that healthcare is a right and not a privilege. But normalizing is an interesting word choice you use. Do you mean to suggest that thinking this way is abnormal right now? Uh, Maybe uh, give us some more description.
1: You know, um, like you, right, this has been, uh, to me, something that just was sort of basic justice and basic common sense, right? That it would be desirable to have a right to health, Um, that in fact, right, it's um, something that many communities at many different times have had. um, And I never felt like I got adequate explanation for why we don't have one here now. Of course, there's the conventional response, right? And so the conventional response is, you know, you know, of course, it's something that we would all benefit from, but it's just not possible here in the u s because, right? And this is this is what you usually get in response. And in fact, I've probably said this to someone myself, too. So um, you know, i'm I'm a culprit along with everyone else. But, you know, you always get some kind of answer like in the u s, we um protect negative liberties, right? So we, can prevent the government from taking away something that you already have, but we never really furnish, affirmatively provide um, something and let you claim it as an entitlement, right? So those kinds of material socioeconomic claims are again, right, sort of not something that is um, familiar in the US. So that is just not a satisfactory answer, Mm. okay? So in these past months, we have seen government mobilize nimbly, automatically, right, to, to commit vast resources to bailing out Silicon Valley bank depositors, right? First Republic bank depositors. Um, we have something called FDIC. People can sue, right, in times of catastrophe to claim on government material resources. And, you know, I just... I see this all over for material interests other than health. And it was just not clear to me that the answer that we have been given all along is satisfactory, right? Meanwhile, right, if you think about it, health is something we already have, right? It's something that we ought to be protected from state action that might impinge, impair, or take it away from us. So let's take, for instance, fracking, right? So we know that the government subsidizes fracking, right? And it may be for good policy reasons, or not. Right? That can be debated. But the fact that right it has a whole cascade of health effects on communities sort of around the fracking sites, and then you know the global community at large. Right? Those are things that have been documented. We know even that tax inequality can kill. Right? Every 10 percent reduction in the EITC results in a 10 in a 23.2. Um, Sort of uh, increase in the number of infant deaths per hundred thousand, right? So, so we start to sort of realize more and more about what um, a lot of government action in other areas uh, can do to affect our health, and and I think we ought to be able to say, look, let's ha- let's let's be able to call for an accounting each time mm-hmm. state action like that takes place.
2: Well, Christina, if, uh, in the book you present uh, some cases and policies to establish a system of health and health care rights. Uh, in America, and you know, looking back uh, over the you know last twenty years or so, we would certainly put the Affordable Care Act perhaps at the front of that list that made a significant difference. But maybe uh, you could share with us what are some of the other cases and policies uh, that you suggest uh, that we look at that really establish the system of health and healthcare rights in America? Yeah. Um,
1: so in the book, right? Um, so i want to show right that there are these ways that we establish rights and some of them i've sort of talked about right so there's this notion of government backing in the event of catastrophe right and in the book i call it sort of the government reinsurance function okay and we see this in a number of different areas including in pensions including in banking as i've described including um you know really sort of we look at flood insurance crop insurance just a whole bunch of domains um where you know we see government Step in with this kind of, um, you know, in some sense, a safety net, right? It's an entitled based backstop. Um, so that's one of the one of the um, one of the areas in which I think we need to think more carefully about sort of how we might extend that usefully in the health context. Another area is um, impact assessments, right? So. Um, All of us have probably heard um if not if we don't really know specifically about but we've heard about the government paperwork paperwork reduction act right and so every time the government takes a regulatory action that burdens right americans in the form of additional paperwork right the government actually has to stop and produce a justification it has to say look this is necessary we understand that this is not we we don't intend to burden you with more paperwork paperwork but it's for a really important goal okay and we have done the research, and we don't think we can accomplish this in any other way. Isn't it striking that we don't yet have that policy to protect us from health impacts that we talked about before, including right tax inequality, you know, fracking, sprawl, right, which increases um, road traffic accidents, right, um, and even right. If you think about it, the government is providing monopolies, right, to pharmaceutical companies um and extending right their patents we know that this makes um important treatments unaffordable right for many americans and then that can have a long-term health impact too so so all these actions the government takes how can it be that we have some kind of claim against government action that gives us more paperwork but we don't have that same claim against the government when it takes action um, that impairs our health so, so, that's that's something where it doesn't require constitutional transformation. It just requires parity in terms of these statutes that we already have in other areas.
0: How, how Affordable do you, Care Act. Oh, go ahead. I was yeah. just going you know, to. How do you frame up the the uh, you know Medicaid, Medicare in the '60s coming on the Affordable Care Act? How, how does that fit into your model? What wh- how, how do you describe what those uh, uh, coverages are or uh, or or the limitations they they present as well? Yeah.
1: Um, so, you know, in the book, right? When I was thinking about this this issue of how health wasn't necessarily being treated on par with a lot of these sort of other um, areas, like pensions, like banking, mm-hmm. um, like housing finance, where um, we provide sort of robust government backstops um, to uh, you know things like liquidity crises or um, you know mortgage crises, I was trying to think well why haven't we done the same in health and then i got to thinking about it and i thought you know what we haven't done so expressly but it has been the impulse behind a lot of um, the most important actions we've collectively taken in the health sector right so for instance um, if you think about sort of the politics of the inception of medicare um, it was in some sense kind of a um, there was a strange bedfellows coalition right so um, you know employers and um unions actually both agreed that that medicare was needed and even insurance companies right um were happy to kind of offload the elderly right people with disabilities and over time we've added um people with ALS and stage renal disease right so so the populations that the government pays for through medicare are the populations that the private sector has found, right, sort of people who are sort of too catastrophically expensive for them mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. really cover, right? So we've, in a sense, kind of accomplished something similar in a backdoor manner through through Medicare and even Medicaid, right? If you think about a Medicaid eligibility category of um, um, the medically indigent, right? This was something that um, hadn't been seen before in um, AFDC, right? You hadn't had this notion that even if someone wasn't Right, um, in poverty per se. Right, we were we weren't looking at sort of whether they were they were um, poor, and uh, but we were we were looking at well, have their medical expenses, right, become so catastrophic that they their existing income is spent down to the point that they income qualify. <laughs> right, that was the notion behind the medically ind- indigent eligibility category in Medicaid. So I. I just started to see that there are sort of traces of this same strong impulse, um, sound impulse, right, to have the government step in when sort of catastrophic thresholds are are reached. Mm -hmm. And I think that that has powered some of our our, um, health policies in the past.
2: I'd like to sort of, Uh, build on that a little bit because it might clarify something I was wondering about. You uh, have written uh, and advocated for the United States to be the reinsurer or to reinsure America's health plans. And, you know, reinsurance means different things to different people. But I'm really curious uh, how you think that would work and sort of what's the, what's the societal benefit to the U.S. being the reinsurer I imagine that might have a significant impact on how uh, commercial insurers did their business, but share with us what your thinking is on that and, of course, you know what, what the cost uh, would be, how would that be borne?
1: Sure. Um, so, right, this is not a new idea,
2: right? It's an idea
1: that has, um, you know, one of the most interesting things I found out in researching the book was that uh, I hadn't known before that Dwight D. Eisenhower actually proposed right. health reinsurance, right? And so, in his 1954 um, State of the Union address, right, and this is sort of post, you know, Harry Truman's kind of, um, you know, heroic but ill-fated attempt to try to achieve universal coverage, right? But um, Eisenhower doesn't want to give up, right? He doesn't want to concede, and he says, you know, look, there is something, there is an important role that the government can play <laughs> in our um, in offering coverage to all Americans, and we can serve as a reinsurer. And so, what he proposed, right, was that the government would step in and take over the claims that were above a certain catastrophic threshold, so high-cost claims, right? So in some sense, right, similar to what we're thinking about with with, with Medicare. Um, mm-hmm. So so folks who, who um, you know, private insur- insurance really just um, hadn't prepared for covering and, and, and weren't necessarily in a position to be able to capitalize. But what he said was he wanted something in exchange. He said, if the government does this, Right? Private insurance has to make sure that it opens the doors to all the people who need health coverage. And that mm-hmm. means people you might not have covered before. That means people with pre-existing conditions. That means people who have disabilities. That means people who um, are, you know, elderly, right? And um, and so we want to open the doors to all Americans to be able to get covered, and the government is going to stand in the background to make sure that the resources are there in order to um, in order to guarantee this coverage. So, so, then, right? If you look at, um, you know, fast forward, uh, John Kerry in twenty in two thousand and four, right? One of the centerpieces of his um, his presidential platform on health care um, when he was running at the time was really reinsurance to back the employer sponsored um, marketplace, right? And he he said, look, we need to be able to, um, you know, ensure the stability. Of employer-sponsored health coverage. I mean, we sort of, you know, all experienced the kind of um, outcry from people who, uh, during the health, Clinton health reform years, and then even afterwards, were saying, "Look, we're afraid of losing the coverage that we already have." Mm-hmm. Right, and so this was a, this was an um, an attempt, uh, you know, a policy proposal to say, "Look, we can stabilize that, but in exchange, right, what we want is some kind of standardization." Okay. We want to make sure that everyone's getting the benefits that they need right we we want to make sure that people are not excluded um and you know it got costed out at the time by um ken thorpe um and uh you know so just off the top of my head all i remember was the overall cost of the whole um you know all of his health proposals so there were you know a number of other items on the list including i think uh premium tax credits and so forth so um, the overall price tag was something on the order of, I think, 600 um, uh, billion. So it's not, you know, reinsurance was some some small, like some some fraction of that, right? But it's not outside the mm-hmm. realm of sort of what we're spending in other areas. If you think about just crop insurance alone, okay, so this is reinsurance for the primary private crop insurers who are taking, right, who are paying for right the losses that farmers experience because of catastrophe mm-hmm. okay so this parallel situation i think we're you know i think it's something on the order of like 150 um 200 billion dollars over 10 right so so again right we're not talking about orders of magnitude difference
2: mm-hmm.
1: um so you know so that's so that's one one answer but just in terms of sort of what kinds of benefits we reap, um you know i could talk about that for a long time but i just want to talk about one um right now which is um if we can use reinsurance as leverage, which is actually what the federal government does for mortgage insurance they actually with the FHA required that you know FHA mortgages you know be sort of 30year low down payment mortgages right so you can create a standardized product we should do the same in health insurance and we should say you know we can beginning to do it in Obamacare um, do it in the um, private employer market, um, you know do it for Medicaid right and say look, The federal government stands behind these programs, but they need to offer certain standard things and they need to undertake cost control, right? The ACA marketplace, um, there are about 15 states that have waivers um, to implement reinsurance in their states to stabilize the marketplace. And one of them is Colorado. And in Colorado, when they made their proposal, they had a term in their reinsurance proposal that said, you know what, um, all the uh, private um, ACA plans need to pay no more than 150% or 200% of medicare. So use medicare reference pricing, right? This is a way to bend the cost curve, right? And only the federal government has the kind of leverage to be able to kind of set those standards. And I think I think reinsurance is a mm-hmm. way that we begin to stitch all the parts mm-hmm. of our fragmented healthcare mm-hmm. system mm-hmm. together and put us on a footing to a more unified and rational healthcare system.
0: Yeah, that's a very interesting point. And probably another one of those examples are the flood insurance that people have who live in well-off communities uh, across the the country. But I wanna focus on one thing you advocate for, which is a required health impact assessment that would protect Americans from health harm. And you compare it to how the country already makes assessments to protect small businesses from economic harm. How does this health impact assessment strategically fit into your argument as health as a right?
1: Well, so, um, I, well, I love that question. Part of, you know, part of it goes back to kind of the impulse um, for writing the book, which I sort of talked about in the first place, which is that I'm just dissatisfied with this this answer, this conventional response that you get that, you know, well, we only do negative rights here in the U.S. And um, so that that's why we can't have a right to health, right? And I kept thinking, you know, I don't see why we couldn't do something health promoting in the form of a negative right. Right? You look around and you see people's health endangered on so many fronts. Right? Um, You know, gun violence. Right? Um, You know, police violence, deaths of despair. Right? And and you know, we try to think about well, what is it that is feeding this? Could we be examining our government policies? right to try to make sure that we're not paying for other policy goals in the currency of lives right and so so that's what i sort of began to see i was like how can it, how can it be that we um you know force the government to take a step and make sure that every time we engage in some kind of regulatory action that we are not unduly burdening small business but then we don't think about You know vulnerable human bodies right every time the government is taking a step why is it that that um the public at large right is supposed to absorb that in the form of toxic incarceration right in the form of um toxic precarity at work right um all of which have been documented right to to have um clear health harms so that's something that i i thought i think we really ought to think about um and i think that you know i'll just say this I think that there have been many innovative, energetic rights entrepreneurs um, who may be on the sort of conservative side of the ledger, right? So, so whoever is my counterpart, um, who may have the opposite politics of me, they're thinking about, well, how do we advance gun rights through legislation? How can we, um, you know, make sure to advance, you know, religious liberty, right? Even if we have to do it through statute, even if we can't get a constitutional amendment. And what i'm what i'm trying to do is sort of seed the um impulse that sort of we should be doing the same right and i think health impact assessments is one way we can do that
2: right well it's always interesting uh in these discussions to think about what people around the country are saying of course it gets even more interesting during a uh, election uh cycle but you've looked at the polling and say there's significant support uh for the government to step more into this area and you you quoted um the pew research center uh, finding that 63 percent of U.S. adults, 63 percent say the government has the responsibility to provide health care coverage for all. And of course, we're veterans of the uh, the lead up to Obamacare and hands off my Medicare and all of the other uh, things that we've lived through over the years. But if 63 percent of U.S. adults say that who or what is holding us back and uh, is what you refer to uh, is it what you've referred to as prevailing neoliberal ideology? And how does that reconcile? Tell us about that.
1: <laughs> so, you know, um, we all kind of bear the battle scars of um, right, the, the Clinton health reform years when sort of Harry and Louise ads were sort <laughs> of omnipresent. And yeah. and they, um, you know, just chipped away at uh, people's confidence that, um, you know, that the, the transition costs and the disruption of of, right. of getting to health reform wouldn't kind of overwhelm you know um all the benefits that could be that could be um uh, yielded and and you know that sense right i think the um the o- obama um affordable care act efforts really tried to um, did a good job of really trying to make sure not to sort of touch that third rail right so you have all these people who are out there who support right um a better government role in assuring health care for everyone. But they're afraid of the disruption to what they might already have, right? Mm-hmm. And so Obama can, Obama's promise that you, you know, if you like your health plan, you can keep it. So what I like about health reinsurance, right, as a proposal is, you know, just the FDIC. You go to your bank, you know that the FDIC is in the background, you know it, you know, your your deposits up to, you know, a quarter of a million dollars are are insured by the government but you're not interfacing with the government you're interfacing with your private bank okay and so i think that reinsurance as a policy um can operate in that way and it's just it's you know it's a shame but we are privatizing medicare faster than we're universalizing mm-hmm. medicare right now over 50 percent of um you know medicare medicare yeah. Yeah, are in medicare uh, advantage right um so And then the concern had always been well how do we get all these folks enrolled in in a kind of medicare for all type program from where they were now i think the nice thing about reinsurance is that right reinsurance operates in the background in a way that people can't see but in a time of need it steps in and should the politics ever transform so should we get to the point where you know we feel like we're the, the stars are aligned and we can act on this kind of strong you know, American public um, sort of public opinion in favor, right, of government role in assuring health care. Right. I, I, said, I always quote this um, this uh Brookings Institute economist, <laughs> Henry Aaron, because he used to ask and I just thought it was so funny. It's so, so insightful. He said, what do we call um, government reinsurance with an attachment point of zero? We would call it single single payer. So you can you can get there with less disruption Right, um from a maybe a, a a foundation of government reinsurance, then maybe we can right now from uh, Medicare, given <laughs> where Medicare is heading,
0: you know you're saying earlier that you're keeping an eye on the on the other side in terms of their strategies of how they build uh, on their uh, objectives. But I'm wondering uh, looking at some of the comments that have been made about this issue, Robert Moffat uh, with the Heritage Foundation writes. Uh, And I'd love to hear your response to this. Unlimited demand at any given point in time must collide with limited supply. Access to care is not and cannot therefore be universal. No federal entitlement such as Medicare or Medicaid benefits constitutes an individual right understood as a legal claim to something of value that is enforceable like private contract. I'm wondering how how you would respond to that uh, proposition. So
1: i think you know and I, I cannot remember who said it at the time um this isn't the time of sort of the jackson Hole debates right leading up to um yeah. the clinton health reform you know and you know someone said right we can we can all agree that it is very difficult to um draw boundaries around well what is medically necessary care or what what is the health care that we should be entitled to and yet People make those calls every day, right? So, so you think it's such an insuperable problem, and yet every day we solve that problem, right? Doctors determine what is the medically necessary care. Um, courts are resolving cases every single day about insurance denials and whether they are legitimate or not. And so, in the in the book, um, you know, as Margaret mentioned earlier, right, I do look at all these cases that are just you know workaday cases where um, you know. Either the courts say, you know, actually that care um, isn't promised under the you know med- medically necessary care of your insurance policy policy, and then sometimes they say, you know, actually it should have been. And so I don't think it is as intractable as you might mm-hmm. think, right? Um, and I feel like, right, we do this for all kinds of other insurance policies all the time as well. So I don't know why we couldn't do it for health, right? Why would we take it off the table completely? So I teach this class um, called South African Constitutional Law, which might sound a little bit far afield from health policy, but it is squarely part of my um, agenda to try to get law students to understand that the legal system can protect socioeconomic rights. Right. They, they can make these kinds of decisions every day, just like we make common law decisions about what is a tort or when contracts should be upheld. Right. Or when your property rights should be vindicated. Right. The courts do this all the time in a, in a, in a common law system that looks much like ours. Right. In South Africa, so South Africa has a constitutional right to health. Right. And I take students there every spring and we talk to lawyers, we talk to activists and um, we talk to um, judges. And we just see that, right, just like our our court system is making calls about any number of things that, you know, what a reasonable person might do or anything else that might seem undefinable to us, they're doing the same thing in South Africa with regard to what they have a right to under the banner of the right to health. And so our system could do the same. It's not impossible.
0: Well, one thing to add uh, uh, to your conversations in that class is that the community health center movement in the United States actually came out of. South Africa.
2: Well, Christina, we really appreciate you taking the time to share the legal foundation and the arguments to back up our belief that uh, not just health care, but health is a right, not a privilege. And thank you to our audience. There's more online about conversations on healthcare, including a way to sign up for our updates. The address, chcradio.com. Christina, continued. Good luck with your work. And thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you so much, Margaret and Mark. This copyrighted program is produced by Conversations on Healthcare and cannot be reproduced or retransmitted in whole or in part without the express written consent from Community Health Center Inc. The views expressed by guests are their own and they do not necessarily reflect the opinion of Conversations on Healthcare or its affiliated entities.
0: 50 years ago, a small band of idealists set out to change their community. Peace and Health is the story of renegades, innovators, caregivers, and community leaders who discover that change is possible. This improbable journey is captured in compelling detail by author Charles Barber. Cornell professor Dr. Joseph J. Finns says, it reads like a novel, but it's all true. Peace and Health, available now.
2: Because healthcare is a right, not a privilege.